coming at you live on a beautiful, sunny, warm afternoon on the American West Coast in Seattle. This is West Coast Radio. Very good to be with you. I am your host. My name's Matthew. Welcome to the program. And on this episode, we have a very special guest, Chuck Shute, the creator and host of the Chuck Shute Podcast. Chuck's show is an interview-style show, and it features really excellent musicians, comedians, authors, actors, and so much more. They are in-depth interviews, and I got to tell you, real, real good shit. So really recommend that you listen to it. On the episode today, we talk about shooting for the moon, Catholic shame, Phoenix, Arizona, and the pursuit of putting together a really, really good show. This episode's a little different than usual West Coast Radio episodes. Usually I do some editing, and I'll keep the episode right around one hour. But as we wrap up Season 1 of West Coast Radio, I've been doing this for a year now. You know, I think that I want to try some new things just towards the end of this season uh, before going into Season 2. I want to try some things. And, you know, my dream when it comes to audio entertainment was always a Howard Stern-type show which is live, in-your-face, unpredictable, and once it's out there, it's fucking out there. That's not the show I've been doing up to now. Up to now, I've controlled a little bit of the narrative. I've done, you know, some editing. Uh, But for this show, I'm just going to say fuck it. We're just going to go with it. We're going to talk. No editing. Just fucking shoot this shit and see what happens. Uh, That's what I want to try today, so that's what I'm going to do. It's an hour and 40-minute episode, which is a little longer than you're used to, but shit. Let's try some new stuff, right? You got to take a chance every now and again. Columbus did. Here's where you can check out the Chuck Shoot Show. Go to Instagram at Chuck underscore Shoot. Chuck Shoot is also on YouTube, of course. Twitter at Chuck Shoot. Facebook, the Chuck Shoot Podcast. The Chuck Shoot Podcast is available everywhere you like to listen to podcasts. Apple, Spotify, The Works. And like I said, I really recommend the program. It is very, very good. Without further ado, let's get right into it. This is West Coast Radio. And joining me on the program is Chuck Shute. He is the host of the Chuck Shute podcast, and uh, he's from Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you very much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm, th- I'm thrilled to be here. I really enjoy your podcast. Uh, like I said, I think uh, one thing I've learned over my period of doing a show myself is it's really, really hard to do an interview. It takes a lot out of me. Uh, it takes yeah. a lot of research, so much work, and um, I don't think there are that many great interviewers out there. I wouldn't consider myself a great interviewer yet. But I would consider you uh, at least well on the way to being a great interviewer. So uh, it's an honor to have you as well. Wow, thank you. Yeah, no fucking doubt. You ready to hear some? Uh, you ready to hear some callers? Yeah. All right. So I don't know what this one says. I know what the next one's going to say. I don't know what this one says though. Um, okay. We'll see. All right. All right. So I do know that we have to address this person. He's called before. Uh, you can either call him Kevin or Dark Star, whatever you prefer. All right. What happened? Hello. Hello? You're better known as Dark Star. We're getting down to the hours and minutes of time here on Earth. (laughs) My team is gathering. We are getting together and discussing the options and talking over with the elders. We do not want to make waves. They thought they were going to do it another way. I'm, I'm going to pause real quick. All right, so <laughs> Kevin is I'm supposed to be scared, asking. I'm but I'm also amused. Kevin is an archangel. Uh, he's 5,000 years right. old, just for All those right. who you know aren't acclimated. 
Uh, he's supposed to be asking a life advice question, so I hope we get there at some point within this okay. two minutes. All right. Way, you know, I convinced them it would be easier to let people know little by little and, and let it get out that we're here. We're not a terror. We're not an organization that's going to take over the earth. We're giving you the earth. We're freeing the land. We will help you. We will always be there at a call of beckoning. Have faith. The times are coming have to be quiet and calm so we may able to work without causing any more waves. Things are getting too upset. We need to call back and call for a calm on everyone. Sit back. Let us show us your, show you our magic that we have of light and love. Seer, we shall be seeing you soon. We paved the way for Christ to come. We love you all. Amen. What? <laughs> okay. I, I'm kind of scared. I'll be honest with you. I'm, I, I didn't, I'm not on drugs right now, but I kind of wish I was, or I feel like I maybe am on drugs, but I'm not. Well, I'll tell you this, you know, uh, the moment an archangel does come up to you and say, listen, end times are coming. You'll probably think that they're not maybe in their right mind, but you know, there is an archangel out there that will do that at some point. Mm. And, uh, I think every archangel who, claims things should at least uh you know we should inquire uh the thing is though he didn't ask a question which yeah i was trying i was looking for the question i didn't hear a question it was more like a statement that uh and uh yeah. i think he was a good angel like, i don't know well, he, he said he's here to save us you know the, the thing is though i will say um it does feel at times that you know the apocalypse could be nigh and you know i don't say that from a con conspiracy perspective or anything like that but there are just moments uh you know Things get so weird oh, yeah. nowadays that I go, maybe, maybe this is it. Yeah, it's very possible. I mean, definitely when the pandemic thing hit, I mean, that was the, some of the weirdest shit I've seen on, on this earth. The pandemic, you know, we had those wildfires. Sometimes you see those summertime wildfires and you go, oh shit, that is hell coming for us, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, or uh, the other natural disasters, the tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes. Yeah. Um, yeah, this guy, Kevin, a nice, happy, uh, episode today, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the thing. This stuff doesn't get me down. You know, I like to ponder. It doesn't really matter what really? it is. Yeah. I'll just fucking yeah. ponder shit. Uh, we have another question though, so we can okay. move away from the sadness. Okay. This is from Tyler. Hopefully this is a happier one. Hey, this is Tyler here. I had, uh, two questions. Uh, I would love for you guys to give some insight. My first question is going to be, at what point is it appropriate to shit in front of, uh, somebody that you're dating? Uh, how long do you have to be seeing someone to be able to comfortably take a shit in front of them? Wait, what was the first question? So when can you shit in front of someone you're dating? At what point is it appropriate or do you feel comfortable taking, you know, you're dating somebody, you're watching a movie on a Friday night in the apartment, and you got to take a shit. At what point is that something that you're comfortable doing? Like with the door open? Or? No, I, I, oh. I, not even with the door open. I think that if you're, you know, if you're like me, oh. you know, you don't have a yeah. lot of money. You live in a studio apartment okay. and, you know, I'm in a situation where I'm with a young lady and not too young, but with a young lady. <laughs> and 
we're just hanging out watching a fucking movie. If I, you know, one thing that mortifies me in, which is why I chose this call is, you know, shit, it's very embarrassing to show that aspect of my humanity to be like, okay, I got to take a shit to get up, walk away, take a shit and then come back. That to me is just really devastating. So, um, here's my answer. Here's <laughs> Dude, what you, do. you ever read that book? Everybody poops. Come on. Everybody I, don't give a fuck. Poops. I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck that, about that book at all. Here's what I, here's my advice. Um, and we'll see what you think afterwards. My advice is this. So if you're in a situation where you can slip her like half of a very mild laxative, do that and then make her, you know, be the first one to do the embarrassing thing. And then it's okay to show your humanity because she had to do it first. Uh, never tell her about this laxative roofie. Um, make sure she doesn't have any type of allergies first because that would be, you know, rude. Um, and that's my advice. So your advice is to drug your girlfriend. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. What about you? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think that you could, uh, I mean, I think eventually it's going to come out, believe it or not, that, you know, your, your secret's going to be revealed that you do take shits. And so I think it's, you know, the, the main thing is to, you know, not be like noisy about it, I guess I would say like if the door, I mean, you said studio apartment, I don't know how close the bathroom is. Um, but I know some girls that like, I, I heard this girl, I think she's a comedian or something, an interview in a podcast where she was in a hotel with her boyfriend and she had to take a shit. She went down to the hotel lobby to take a shit. She would not take it in the same hotel room as her boyfriend. So teach their own. I think it's an ancient thing. You know, like dogs, you always hear that dogs will look at you or they look away because it's like some ancient, you know, it's, you're so vulnerable. You think of, you could get hunted or you could be exposed yeah. when you're taking a shit, something about that. But, um, it's, it's, you know, it shows a very, um, vulnerable aspect of your, of your humanity when you do that type of thing. And, you know, when you have to acknowledge, at some point you have to acknowledge, I got to take a shit. Yeah. And that's something that I've never matured past. You know, I'll, I'll tell you straight up. I've never matured past what? that. Did you, bring, um, were you uh, brought up Catholic? Yes. Uh, how did I know that? How did you know Catholic that? Catholic shame. They shame me for everything. Shame <laughs> me for taking a shit. I, I'm Catholic too. So you feel shame as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you of course. shame. Yeah. Everything shame. Everything. Everything I do, I'm like, oh God, I did something wrong. What are they? I just said the F word. I, you know, it's like everything I do, I, I, I second guess. I'm like, oh, what am I doing? So what I is that? What is it about that. Catholicism that makes people feel guilty? This is I don't interesting. Know. It's just how you it's like passed down from generation to generation. Catholic guilt. I think there's Jewish guilt too, I've heard. I mean, you know, I'm not Jewish, but I've heard Jewish people talk about a sim similar kind of thing. Yeah, they used to talk about Jewish guilt all the time on Will and Grace, classic show. Oh yeah. You remember Will and Grace? Yeah, vaguely. I I don't I wasn't like a diehard watcher, but it'd be like a thing where it's like somebody's got it on and I'd watch and um, you know, I, I laughed at some of that stuff. The, the Jack character, he was really funny. And incredibly progressive, if you think about it. I mean, that was like yeah. late 90s, early 2000s. That's a good point. I didn't think of that, but you're right. Because, well, let's see. Because I think Ellen was the first openly gay, like, main character. But then that show came on, like, right after that. And then that's, like, one of the first openly gay, like, main characters on a TV show. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, they didn't even really open openly address it too much. It was just a couple of gay men living their fucking lives. You know, it was just yeah. it was very realistic. They didn't it wasn't in your face with any political message. It was a good. Show. It was one of my comfort shows when my dad was in Afghanistan because I got to stay up a little later that year. So hmm. um, there was like that show. Emeril Lagasse live was one of the other comfort blanket shows that I had. You remember that those days of Food Network? Yeah, I never really got into the, to the Food Network stuff as much either. But I, you know what I like is like kind of more of the travel shows where like Bar Rescue. That's one of my favorites where they go in and they they fix up like the shitty bar restaurant or whatever. And the guy and he yells at everybody. I, I, I enjoy that show. That was great. Yeah, that's more the new age travel channel. Okay. 
I think that's all right. Let's play some fucking. Uh, let's play some fucking Jeopardy. See where you are. Oh boy, I'm I'm and, terrible uh, at this. I don't know anything about the news. Well, that's okay. You know, I've had a CEO that's gotten zero out of five, and um, <laughs> I've had all types of different people okay. get. Yeah, I've got. I've I've had people get five out of five that you may not expect. You know, I've, all across the board. So you can never yeah, tell. I listened to the. I was listening to your episode, uh, your latest one, and, the, and and I got some of those questions. I think you asked like who the Deshaun Watson question, and there was someone's like, oh, I know that one. Damn it! I hope. So hopefully, I'll get some of them. All right, there's another Deshaun Watson one in there, so be excited. Ooh. This newly released film broke pandemic box office records for an opening day with $9.6 million. What was it? I have no idea. It's Godzilla vs. Kong. Which royal family member just died? Prince Philip. Excellent. Very good. What is the first name of Deshaun Watson's lawyer? Is it A, Dallas, B, Bubba, C, Rusty, or D, Dusty? (laughs) I'm going to say Dusty. Oh, that's so close, but incorrect. It is C, Rusty. Ah, damn it. Okay. Rusty Harden. Okay. Really? That's really his name? Uh Uh-huh. Wow. That dude's fucked, by the way. You know, at first yeah. I thought it was a hit piece. I really did because of the timing. You know, he he mm-hmm. decides I'm not playing for the Texans, and then he gets smacked in the face. But at some point, you know, you get 22 people speaking out. It can't yeah. be just bullshit, you know? Well, it's sad because his story is, was so inspiring, you know, he where he came from and he uh, how he, you know, worked so hard to get where he's at. So he just made some bad decisions. Slept in a car. You know, he he and his mom were, yeah. you know, they were struggling to find a house for a Warwick Dunn. Famous running back for uh, the Atlanta Falcons. He directly, he helped Deshaun Watson get a house through one of his foundations when he and his mom were struggling. And uh, yeah. it's crazy. And you know, the other crazy thing is you can see based off of when he was committing the crimes, he got more bold. So like in March, he did it wow. a couple of times. In, in April, he did it way more than May, way, way, way more or whenever he was doing this shit. Um, but there was like a three month span where like the numbers picked up more and more and more over that 90 day period. And it was like watching somebody get more confident with their deviance. You know, in my opinion, this story is as tragic, if not more as the OJ Simpson one. It's a big deal. Really? I I guess I don't know a lot of the details. Was it uh, something about massage parlors or prostitutes or was it, was he raping girls? How bad was it? There's one allegation where he forced a woman to perform oral sex on him. So that was the one rape charge. The other ones are his thing was he had sort of a fetish for getting people who didn't do massages, like they were a cosmetologist or something Mm. like that. Some of them were massage therapists, but they were all either licensed or they were doing some type of beauty work outside of actually doing massages. And then he would get them to come to his house and he would put them in a position where like he would want them, he would, he would show up naked. Then they would say, I'm not comfortable with this. And then after he made them do the massage, he liked women to like rub his asshole with lube. And he also liked, <laughs> like, he Jeez. liked to make them jerk him off. Like that okay. was, it's all in the crime reports, but, um, he, he liked the power. He got off on the power of making women who weren't expecting to do sex work to, to make them do sex work. And he would say disgusting things like, um, you know, I have a career that's really valuable and and it's really important to me to maintain my reputation. I'm sure you wouldn't want anything to happen to you that would ruin your reputation, right? And then that would make the women want to, you know, jerk them off and shit. It was very disgusting stuff, you know, horrible. Yeah, creepy. But, you know, 25 years old, quarterback, face of a franchise, when Tom Brady retires and and, uh, we leave this this wave of guys like 
you know, Brady Roethlisberger, Matt Ryan, even he's the face of the franchise. You know, Aaron, when Aaron Rodgers is gone, especially uh, Rodgers and Brady, he was going to be the face of the NFL, like legitimately. And now um, he's probably going to go to prison. You know, we'll see what happens. No criminal loss, no criminal files yet, but. uh, Will he come back though? Cause look at Michael Vick. He went to prison and then he came back and played. No, he won't. I don't, he'll, he won't come back for this. I, I, I would almost guarantee I'd bet money on it for certain, but you can't come back from, you know, 22 women saying you sexually assaulted them. You just can't do it. Roethlisberger had an assault. He only had one that was documented, but that's true. And he, and you know what, not only did he get away with it, nobody really batted an eye, but I feel like if that happened 22 times though, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know. I I never understand how certain people get away with things and other people don't. I don't really understand the, uh, the rules on some of this stuff. Well, and, and you know, in the modern day too, Roethlisberger, uh, I don't want to say he got lucky, but it was right before the Twitter, social media, Instagram craze. Right. And and now, you know, and this is something that's interesting with the Chauvin trial too. I don't want to get too much into that, but with social media, really any type of perspective is going to be skewed in the court of law. You know, it's very, oh, con- yeah. So how does, but how does Robert Downey Jr. get away with doing blackface in a movie when everyone else who did it, even if it was way longer ago or a way less, like less, uh, blatant version of blackface like they are just like like jimmy kimmel is like kind of was kind of canceled for a little while but somehow robert downey jr no one's coming after him there's a conspiracy in hollywood that people like (laughs) kimmel and robert downey jr especially like the hollywood elites have some dirt on them that would fucking ruin them so even though they have like this stuff as long as they're in the back pocket of the hollywood elites that's why that's why people think that jimmy kimmel went super left wing, you know, cause he used to be really inappropriate. Um, there's a theory that those types of folks, there's like crazy dirt on them. So like if they tried to do their own thing or, uh, anything, they would be totally fucked. So that's why they get away with the blackface because, um, the people that would be condemning, you know, and starting these crazy witch hunts, they're still in their favor. Does that sort of make sense? Kind of. Yeah. But I'm saying like, I was actually saying Jimmy Kimmel is one that, um, that didn't get away with it. Like he did kind of get canceled. Didn't he go off the air for like, I don't know, was it six months or eight months? It was a long time. He took a break or whatever. When? But like Robert Downey Jr. Didn't have to take a break. When was the Jimmy Kimmel break? Uh, it was like over the summer. I want to say like, but yeah, they brought up the, cause he did the uh, blackface for the Carl Malone. I don't know if you ever saw that. Like I'm Carl Malone. And he would yeah, make yeah, fun yeah. of Carl Malone. And mm-hmm. uh, there was like, there was rum. People were like, you know, mad about it. They were upset because all this stuff was surfacing and he didn't really get canceled, but he just kind of like preemptively said, I'm going to be taking a hiatus from the show. And he went, I think it was like at least six months. He was just gone. That's interesting. Yeah, Who knows? I don't know. You know, maybe, uh, that's, that's another strategy too, is you take yourself out of a situation and just wait till the news cycle kind of. Yeah. That's over. Yeah. If you try to fight it, I feel like that doesn't usually work out very well. Yeah, you know, Trudeau's another guy who got away with it. Trudeau skipped right over that blackface. Did he get away with it? Because I, I thought, did he have to apologize or something or no? Yeah, I mean, he apologized, but there's, I mean, really, what is that? Yeah. I always, and I think too, it's like, what is your intent with it? Like, I don't think, Jimmy Kimmel wasn't making fun of necessarily black people. He was just making fun of Carl Malone specifically. He was just putting on the makeup to just, you know, like he would do with any other character. But I guess you got to be more sensitive given the history there. Well, that's another question because, you know, one really kind of popular niche industry is hyper-realistic president masks. You know, everybody knows the Nixon mask, right? Mm-hmm. 
uh, is it blackface if you wear the Obama mask and you happen to be Chuck? Yeah, I'm not going to take a chance on that one. I'm going to stay a hundred f- yards away from that. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's it's just all it's all up in the air. You know, th- there's a lot of a uh, a lot of questions right now as to far as far as yeah. what's appropriate, what's not. And you know, right, is that well, something that you like ten years ago? I don't think any. I mean, because Jimmy Kimmel did the Carmelone and nobody cared then, but now all this sh- they're digging this shit up. So it's like, who knows? what we say now that in 10, 15, 20 years, people are going to be digging up and going, I can't believe that you guys said this or that. And, you know, we don't know what the future's going to hold. So it's kind of scary. Yeah. And I think the consequence of that will be, you know, if, if people are super woke right now, I think there's going to be a crazy backlash where people go, okay, you know what? Fuck you. Let's see how inappropriate the world can really get. I think because everything tries to balance itself. So if this extreme is happening right now, I think you know, there's going to be some type of subconscious push in the other direction where people get really vile and really crude again, just to try I to balance so. it out. I hope so. Yeah. Cause that's why I tell my friends, I'm like, I think things are kind of cyclical. Like in the sixties, you know, you saw all this protest and, and the hippie movement and all that. And then that kind of like, you know, waned away. And then the eighties were totally different. And then, yeah, I feel like we're kind of going back to that kind of sixties, like protest style and, and all that kind of thing. I mean, if it's funny, I don't know if you watch the, uh, the show, the wonder years, that's a great show, but, um, it takes, you know, it's filmed in the nineties, but it takes place in the sixties. And a lot of those episodes, like I'm watching, I'm going, this is like the same issues that, that are coming up now. It's kind of interesting. I'll have to check that out. I haven't even oh, heard of it. Great show. It's, it holds up too. It's so good. Where is it? Or wh- where can I find it? Oh, I'm trying to remember where I watched it. Uh, we have like everything. So I, it's on like, I think it might be Hulu or, uh, Netflix. Uh, I don't remember. All right. I'll, 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 I'll give it a Google. Yeah, give it a goog. Officers in this city can no longer search a vehicle due to the smell of marijuana alone. Which city is this? Uh, which city can they no longer search? If they, Well, I mean, it's legal in like half the state, so it's got to be one where it's not legal yet, but maybe they're... It's a they're top lean- 10 city. It's a top 10 market. Top 10 market. Um, it's this, Okay, not the whole state, just the city? Yes. I'm going to say Dallas. That would be New York City. Oh, okay. Is, 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 isn't weed legal in the state of New York or no? Uh, legislators decided that they were going to legalize it, but they said that it'll probably take two to three years to figure out how to do that appropriately. So, Oh, that's weird because we just legalized it here in Arizona and the stores are up. They're ready, to, they're ready to go. People are buying weed, buying edibles, all that shit. Yeah, but Arizona's done a really good job medically for a while. So it, it's been pseudo-legal, and I think probably it's, yeah. it's kind of an easier step forward than New York, who their medical system was much more archaic than Arizona's. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I thought New York was more uh, progressive. So I thought they'd have it ready to go. I mean, from people I know who live there, they said it was basically legal for a long time. You know, they had all types of delivery systems, and it was, it's been decriminalized for a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's full-on legal now. Hmm, cool. A Florida woman who was arrested for coughing on a cancer patient was recently sentenced to how many days in jail? Is it A30, E60, C90, or D120? Somebody coughed on a cancer patient? Yeah, in Florida. That's screwed up. I'm going to say, I'll just go in the middle, 60? It was 30 days. Okay. All right, that was, uh, that was fucking Jeopardy. How many did you get right? You got one out of five correct. Oh, no, wait, wait. Yeah, you did. You got one out of five correct. That's not so bad. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> this one was I don't pretty, keep it, up it, with the news very much. I mean, like, I do, but it's like only what my friends send me. So it's like kind of more what they're interested in. And uh, so, yeah. 
there really wasn't anything shocking or new this week. It was kind of hard for me to actually write the quiz, but uh, yeah, don't beat yourself up too much. It was kind of a dull week. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there was a, the Prince Philip thing was big and then DMX died and uh, the, 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 the Deshaun Watson stuff's going on. And we, well, yeah, that's in the rest of the show though. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, the, the Prince Philip stuff isn't, do people still care about that? You know, it's sad that he died, but I, um, yeah, I'm not, my girlfriend's into that a little bit. I, she was trying to explain every time she tries to explain the Royal family to me, I just, I kind of find myself just starting to kind of drift off and I just, I don't know, for some reason I just can't get interested in that stuff. I just don't care. I, I I didn't know. I didn't even know who he was. I was like, wait, he's like an old man, but he's the prince. And she had to explain it to me why I was like, shouldn't he be the king if he's married to the queen? And then there's a whole reason for that because the, 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 he's not actually technically royal blood. Only the queen is and the queen married him. So she, he has to be lesser than her or something. I don't know. Speaking of being a good interviewer, did you check out the uh, Meghan Markle Oprah interview? Um, no, I think I just saw clips of it. But um, because I couldn't figure out how to watch it. And so I don't, was it on, uh, did you have to go on like cbs.com or what? It wasn't on YouTube. No, nah, I was watching, I, I saw it live on ABC or whatever it was. Okay. Yeah. Um, but we'll skip over that. I, I wanted to see what you thought of, uh, what you thought of the interview. It was kind of interesting. You know, there was, it was, it was kind of fishy because, you know, they have a financial interest in one another. They're making a movie together. So, oh, um, I didn't know that. Well, I will say, um, I mean, from what I, the articles I read and the clips I saw and stuff, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems like on the one hand, you've got this girl who's, you know, she's a, what do you call it? A princess or whatever. She, you know, she's this, they're rich, they're famous. They got, but then she's complaining that, you know, Oh, she doesn't get the security that they need and all this and that. And, uh, but I think I heard something like Tyler Perry offered to buy her a house or let her live in their giant mansion. And so, I mean, I don't really feel that sorry for her. If that makes sense. Like, so, but then on the other hand, you kind of go, well, she is kind of getting screwed over on some things. So I, I don't really know. I, I, like I said, I don't really care that much about the Royal family. So. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I, I've given my thought in previous shows. Really, my opinion is it's just it comes down to I think that a lot of it is uh, it's probably somebody who's used to an American style of freedom who, mm. you know, you go to yeah. a world where everything is controlled and locked because really what the royal family is at this point is the world's most powerful facade. They don't really mean anything. They don't really do right. anything. But, you know, it's still a palpable kind of kind of just veil. You know, it's really just it's just a, a figure. Um but there's a bit of nothing. They don't do anything. They don't really make decisions. Uh, they have their own prime minister. So it's that type of thing. Uh, I think that she probably got herself into a situation that she didn't really understand completely. And also, I have no issues believing the royal family's racist. You know, I mean, she's probably the first person of color in their whole fucking bloodline. And I'm not making excuses mm-hmm. for their racism, but, I, you know, it's not hard to believe because of that. Yeah. I mean, like, again, I don't, I don't really know, but yeah, I did hear something about the the racism too. And that, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe she didn't really know what she was getting herself into, but you got to know if it's the Royal family, like you're going to be in the spotlight and you're not going to be able to get away from that. So yeah, I don't know. Being from where you are in Phoenix, there, you know, desert paranormal stories are of particular interest to me. You know, you had the Ooh. Phoenix lights, you have UFOs, all okay. types of that shit. But you also have stories like, you know, Native American paranormal stories. The Skinwalker is one that's really famous from around your region, at least. Uh, do you have any of those paranormal stories that you've either heard doing your show, doing interviews, or that you've picked up just, you know, living life in Phoenix? Oh, yeah. So I, I'm I'm not familiar with the skinwalker. I mean, that sounds familiar, but I, you'd have to jog my memory. But the ones that I can tell you about, 
that I know of. So I went, we went to um, Tombstone. I've been there twice and done ghost tours there. And that's one of the supposedly, uh, well, the Birdcage Theater is the one that we went to last time. It's supposedly one of the most haunted buildings in the world or America or whatever. And uh, it was weird. So we go in and they give us these little devices and you can pick up uh, whatever the radio waves are and whatnot. But um, I, I didn't really notice anything with that. But one thing that was interesting is she told us uh, that, you know, besides hearing things and seeing things, you can smell things. And there was this spot in the room. It was very bizarre. We went into the spot in the room and it was the middle of the room and you could smell. It was very palpable, like cigarette smoke. And there was no smoke that you could see. So I don't know. I mean, it could have been coming through some sort of vent. Somebody was smoking out in the back, you know, somewhere and it's coming in through some sort of like vent or crack in the wall or something. I don't know, but you couldn't see it and you could smell it like very clearly. And so that was a little weird, definitely. And some of that stuff is, it's spooky. Uh, We stayed in the Jerome Hotel, which used to be a mental hospital. That's another one of the most haunted places in Arizona or the country or world or whatever. And uh, I definitely didn't sleep very well. I heard a lot of weird noises, but nothing that I would say was like a ghost or anything. But that stuff is very, very fascinating. If anything, just the history is really interesting. Yes. Wow. Very, very interesting. And um, yeah, I've heard that thing about smoke before. I've I've certainly heard, you know, um, you'll smell you'll smell cigarette smoke here. You know, that'll that'll be how you know that this ghost is on its way or whatever. Like yeah. That, but, it was um, real for sure. I could smell it. It, you know, wasn't, I, I was like, what, how, why does it smell? It was like this one certain spot. That's why it was really bizarre. So that was very strange. I will say I never, I've never seen or, or heard anything that, that really freaked me out like that. And then, and I don't even know that the smoke freaked me out, but it was just odd. I mean, I don't know. And it could be maybe the, the, the birdcage theater is, is pumping that in somehow to, you know, freak people out. But, uh, it was kind of cool. I mean, I would definitely recommend if you're ever in Arizona, Go to Tombstone and um, go to the Birdcage Theater. It's a, it's an amazing what happened because the story behind that is, you know, it was this hotel and whorehouse, and what happened was, um, it was like Doc Holiday and all those guys would go there, and then I can't remember it was like the gold rush ended or something for some reason whatever they locked it up and they said we're going to come back, and they just never came back. So they locked it up, and so when people you know went in there like 20, 30, 40 years later, whatever, it was like it had been like frozen in time. They hadn't touched it. There was still like poker chips on the tables and stuff. So it's just been like, it's one of those few places that has really not been uh, changed a lot over the years. So it's, you're really getting a snapshot of what it was like back then. And that, that part alone to me is like really cool. You know, it must've been a rough way of life. Just thinking about it real quick, you know, being living in Arizona back then, because it was before air conditioning. And I would imagine it's just, it must've been an oven all the time for people out there, especially for at least, you know, six months out of the year. Um, yeah, the way of life in Arizona must've been bit, tough. I think it's a little bit cold, cooler, but yeah, you're right. I don't, and especially the, if you look at and see what they wore back then, I never see people, you never see people wearing like shorts and a t-shirt. They yeah. always got like the full suit or like the overalls or, you know, they're, I never see them even wear short sleeves. I don't think. No, big old jacket, leather jackets, cowboy hats. All you couldn't afford to get like uh, sores and shit like that from letting your sun, be, your skin be exposed to the sun. You know. Yeah. What was for shoot sure. for the moon LLC? Ooh, wow! You you did some research. This is kind of fun being the, oh, shit. the subject of a, a research. No, that was my uh, coaching business that I started. Oh, I don't know when it was. Like what ten? Uh, has it been that long? Seven, eight years ago? 
five. I don't, I don't remember exactly when I started, but yeah, it's like, cause I was a counselor in the schools and I really wanted to branch out and do like private mental health counseling, just one-on-one with people, uh, private practice kind of thing. And, but to do that, to get licensed, it's really kind of a nightmare. Uh, but there's kind of a loophole is like, if you can call yourself a life coach, you don't need a license or, or anything. Anybody can call themselves a, a life coach or a job coach or whatever you want to any sort of coach or whatever. So I kind of tried that. And, uh, you know, I just realized I was like, you know, I really just don't even want to do this right now. It's just not really my passion for some, I just wasn't feeling it. I, I had a couple clients and, um, it, it just felt more like, uh, I think I was just burnt out on helping people to be honest with you. So I, I'm still, I haven't, uh, totally like, you know, deleted all that stuff. Cause I have a Facebook page and a Instagram and stuff. Um, I would like to launch that back up again, but I feel like the thing is, is with the coaching is like, it was really hard to get clients. And I felt like, okay, there, there's something I'm doing wrong. Then if people aren't like reaching out to me, you know, I lowered my prices and stuff. I was like, I'm, this is a pretty reasonable, you know, I have a master's in counseling and stuff. But so I think I, my goal is to kind of more prove myself to the world, I guess. And then I think people will reach out from, you know, coaching for me. And at that point, maybe, maybe I'll do it or, I'll turn it into some sort of like charity organization. Cause I do want to like help the world, I guess, as cheesy as that sounds or make the world a better place. So that's kind of my uh, springboard to do that. And I've just kind of put it on hold right now, but there is uh, possibly a book that I've kind of been working on called shoot for the moon. That's kind of in that kind of touchy feely kind of realm. So that may come out someday. I don't know when. So what were the clients that you did have, what were they looking for? Was there like a common, you know, set of themes that they were like, you know, I need help losing weight. I need help finding a partner in life. You know, what was, what, what type of person was going to be a client of shoot for the moon? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I had a couple that just kind of would do like one session and then kind of drop off or whatever. Mm. But uh, like I had this one guy and he was, he was like worked at like some restaurant, uh, manufacturer or something. He was just kind of like a workaholic and it sounded like he just, needed kind of a place to vent and talk. And so, uh, but then he just kind of fell off and stopped calling and I don't know what happened there. And then the other one I had was this, uh, woman, it was her daughter and the kid was, the kid was really young. And I told her, I go, I usually don't, it doesn't work very well to do coaching or counseling for me with kids that are younger than like 13. And this girl was, I want to say like 11 or 12 and, um, and so, you know, I think the the mom was really concerned that she wasn't socially, you know, where she thought that the daughter should be at that point. And I was like, well, I think she's just an immature little kid. I don't know that she's like, cause the thing with coaching is like, in my opinion is like, it needs to be people that want to work on themselves. And it's not my job to tell them what to do or to like, quote unquote, fix them or anything. It's just more like, I'm kind of like a sounding board for, you know, what they want to do with their life. And she wasn't, you know, super goal. She's a kid, you know, so she's not yeah. super goal oriented and stuff. So it's hard to do that stuff um, with kids. I did have the experience working in the schools, but um, I just think I just got burnt out on the whole thing. I was like, I'm having a hard time. Cause I think for me, I was like, okay, I really want to do all this stuff with my life. And then, so to be around people all day that, that just don't have any motivation to do anything. It was just like, I felt like it was kind of like dragging me down. If that makes sense. Are you satisfied with your experience in graduate school? You know, I'm somebody who I have my bachelor's right now and um, I did pretty well. I, I, you know, I got a 3.7 department, so I could go to graduate school, probably get a little money to do that if I wanted to. Um, I actually, I went for a couple quarters right out of my bachelor's. You know, I tried to force Mm -hmm. a situation because I had 
a couple of quarters of free tuition money to do that. Um, but you know, for me, it was it was completely wrong program. I backed out early, you know, and, and I don't regret that decision at all. But graduate school is something that is on my mind, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, what was your experience with graduate school? Do you regret it? Do you think that you couldn't be who you are today without it? What are your feelings there? That's a really good question. Um, it's hard to say because, I mean, I look at my life right now and I'm like, there's so many things that I'm so happy with and I'm so grateful. And I think it all worked out the way it's supposed to in a way, even though I'm not where I want to be. I feel like I'm on the right path. Um, but then there's another part of me that goes, I think I could have been on this path a lot earlier if I hadn't gone the graduate school and working in the school. If I hadn't gone that route and if I'd taken another route, um, I might be further ahead to where I want to be. So I think it just depends on what you want to do. If you, you know, if you want to be a counselor or school counselor, or if you uh, want to be a social worker or a lot of those jobs or something in the medical field, if it's something that requires you to get a master's degree or some sort of graduate school, then, then by all means, like you don't really have a choice, you know, like if you want to be a nurse, you got to go to nursing school. If you want to be a doctor, you got to go to medical school. So, um, you have to follow that, um, if that's what you want to do, but I guess you just have to look at where do you want to be in five, 10 years down the road? Like what is your ultimate goal? I mean, if your ultimate goal is to, to do talk radio, I would say, I don't think you need to go to graduate school for that, you know? So, <laughs> No, you're damn right about that shit. You really don't even need to finish high school. You just have to be able to put on a good show. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it definitely helps to at least, I think that, you know, getting your bachelor's is good because I think you'll learn a little bit about the world and, and, you know, uh, certain subjects and topics and how to write papers and vocabulary and those things. I mean, it, it helps to be a little bit more educated. I think it doesn't necessarily hurt other than the only time, you know, only investment is the time. So you got to think like, was that two years worth your time or was it a waste of time? Um, for me, I, I don't know. I guess I can go back and forth because I, I did learn a lot in graduate school. I feel like I learned more like life lessons than I did actually, like a lot of the classes I took. I mean, if you asked me what I learned in certain classes, I probably couldn't even write three paragraphs about it. I don't remember a lot of that, but a lot of the life lessons, um, you know, I, that, that definitely, it was like kind of like boot camp. at least my graduate school was like, a lot of the stuff we had to do, I mean, it, it really taught me a tough work ethic that I didn't have in high school. Cause I don't know about you, but for me, high school was kind of a joke. Like I didn't, I always did the bare minimum. I didn't work a lot. I was more just spending time, you know, I'm as interested in music and sports and movies and things like that. So I just would do the bare minimum with high school. And so then when I went to college, I was like, okay, I actually have to like work and study if I want to like graduate. Yeah. That's what it was like for me too. You know, the public school system, you really just, um, for the most part, and a lot of it matters, you know, your support system at home and how much they put an effort into what you're, you know, whether or not you're learning appropriately, you're reading, you know, at the level you're supposed to be reading and shit like that. But for the most part, you know, in public school, you show up and you can get at least a 2.9, you know, two point something. That's what I did. I got a 2.9, mm-hmm. uh, struggled early on in college, but, you know, finished strong and all that stuff. Um, well, it's interesting though. See, I thought the same thing and I'm, I'm about the same as you. I didn't do a lot. I did the bare minimum. I got like a 3.0. Um, but then when I, when I was on the other end of it and I worked in the schools for 17 years, you'd be surprised how many kids are working really hard and they can't even get D's in their classes. So I think for you and me, like we're, we're a little bit lucky in some regard that we're not, not that either one of us is a genius, but if you can skate by and not do a lot and get a 3.0, you're, you're probably above average. There's a lot of people that really struggle. Well, I'll tell you what breaks my heart with that. What breaks my heart with that is, you know, uh, 
the school system, it does the best it can. You know, we, it's such a massive amount of people that the U.S. school system is trying to educate. It's a very difficult yeah. job. And um, for, for, you know, somebody like you and I, we can navigate that type of system where, all right, we're going to teach you something. You know, one teacher, 32 kids will throw out this broad message. I'm sure most of you will figure out the fucking gist. So then you have somebody like my brother. So my brother, he really struggled throughout high school, barely graduated. And the counselor told my parents, listen, if he doesn't pass this standardized math test and he hasn't passed it twice already, he's not going to be able to graduate. Uh, he's not going to be able to graduate high school. So you guys have to figure something out. So anyway, he goes to a tutoring center that my parents paid for out of pocket for two weeks. And he got almost perfect scores on all three of the sections of that math test that he had the standardized test. And so, you know, it is interesting. A lot of those kids who get D's and they work really hard, it's just because they need a little one-on-one attention. And for whatever reason, resources at home, you know, they can't get it. Uh, That's the shame. But for a lot of those kids that get the D's, it's just, they need a little tweak in how they're taught. You know, it just needs to be a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, part of it is, uh, I, I, as someone who was a counselor, I mean, I, I saw the biggest thing that I saw was just motivation. The kids, uh, did, there's so many kids that just literally, I mean, I thought I was kind of lazy and didn't give a shit, but I still was able to get a 3.0, but I'm saying there's these kids, like they're so lazy. They don't give a shit. Like they will literally just do nothing. They won't turn in anything. They won't even try to write a paper. They'll just not turn it in. And I mean, you can't really get through life that way. I mean, you got to at least turn in the paper or take the test. I mean, you know what I mean? To at least, and then usually you, I think you can get a D if you just, I think 99% of school or even life is, is just showing up and doing it. And I think there's a lot of kids that just wouldn't do that, but you're right. There are some that, um, you know, they're working really hard and they, and they can't, you know, there was like some of these girls that couldn't take uh, or, and boys too, that, uh, just, you know, they would work really hard at the math classes and they just couldn't pass this like second algebra class. That was, it was tough. And so I think part of that should be, uh, steering some of that, those basic requirements to something else. Like not everyone's going to be a mathematician. So maybe, you know, make the bare minimum for math, something else and steer them into the direction of what they're good at. And that's something that the schools fail at. They don't recognize kids' strengths and, and focus on those. And so, so so those kids who, who, you know, they don't show any type of caring, they don't, you know, put any effort or anything like that into their schoolwork. Do you think that's a home life issue or what, or they just don't give a fuck? Um, well, it's kind of, that's kind of like a chicken and egg thing. Like, you know, did they, do they not give a shit because of their home life, the way they've been brought up or it's just just like, is it their innate personality? Or I think, you know, I mean, I think people do, I think everybody gives a shit. I think people are competitive. It just, you've got to find a way to light a fire in them. And, and as a guidance counselor in 17 years in high schools and middle schools, like I just didn't have the answer to that. And I, I, I think that eventually they will. I hope that they do grow up and figure out something that they're passionate about, or at least enough to be able to go to work and, and, uh, pay the bills. But, you know, there's a lot of people that are really struggling and that's what we talked about earlier off air with the homeless is I think they just haven't found a reason to, to do anything or they don't know how to, how to do it. And so, you know, I don't really have all the answers, but I just know it's a, it's definitely a growing problem. Like from when I started, we would have like, you know, maybe one or two kids, per grade level that just wouldn't do anything. And then when my last year education, I mean, it was overwhelming how many kids wouldn't do anything. And so I, I don't know, it's getting kind of scary. The phones definitely didn't help. Jeez. And what, what type of area were you in? What, what was the, you know, oh, I was all over. The area? So 
Um, when I started in the schools, I was in uh, two, I was in two middle schools in Renton, Washington. So, you know, one of them, McKnight was in the kind of more, it was kind of a more of a mix of, there was some middle, upper middle class and middle class and lower, lower class um, poverty. But, and then the other one was a lot more uh, poverty stricken and uh, very diverse. Um, but yeah, and then I've been over here and I've been in, you know, schools with the gifted programs and schools that are, you know, super diverse and, uh, you know, low income and all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, I've seen it all, but yeah, that's just definitely a growing, it's kind of like too, like what we're talking about with the, uh, with the wealth gap too, like you, cause there's some kids that are just, they're so smart and they get an A and everything and they're straight A's. And then you have kids that do nothing and fail everything. And so it seems like there wasn't as, it was kind of like one or the other, like kids either like came to school and they were like, all right, I'm doing everything and I'm going to get A's or, I'm coming, coming to school and I'm not doing shit. I don't care about the schoolwork. I'm just here to see my friends. That's incredible. Yeah, it must scare you about the future, huh? Having that type of in-depth <laughs> Yeah, knowledge. and I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm old now. And maybe this is what every generation thinks. But I don't know. Because I just saw it get progressively worse the longer I stayed in education. So I don't know. It's, there's like this uh, cartoon and it would show... It would show like 1960s and it would show uh, the parents and the teacher like yelling at the kid like look what you, you did this wrong. What are you doing? And like, you know, scolding the kid. And then it was like current day and it was showing the, the parent, uh, and the teacher blaming each other and the kid just sitting back and relaxing. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've seen it. Um, that's, yeah. How old are you by the way, if I may ask? 43. Damn. I thought you were like in your twenties. Wow. Thank you. That's good. It must be my Photoshop I'm doing. I don't know. Yeah, you're welcome. Holy shit. All right. Very interesting. Okay. You know, it's, it's always, it's, it's weird. Um, I try to treat every guest the exact same. I really do. Um, but there is a, you do in your head, you go, okay, I need to be a little more formal when I'm speaking to somebody older than me or, okay, now I could be casual They're you know, 26 as well. Uh, and I'm starting <laughs> to get over that, but at first yeah. it was kind of weird. Yeah. No, I think, I don't think it's about age either. I think it's just personality. I mean, some, I've learned that with certain guests, like, you know, you can really joke around. It's like, right when you start talking to them, it's like, okay, this is like an old friend. And then other people, it's like, okay, wow, I got to be like super professional. And, uh, you know, like I get kind of scared some almost like I have to, I'm like, oh fuck, I, I got to be on my game. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, I think it's more personality thing personally. Who scared you? Uh, God, I don't want to say, but, uh, I mean, if you watch some of my interviews, I mean, yeah, you'll, you'll see like, I don't know. I mean, everyone's been overall really great. Don't get me wrong, but you know, just certain people I could, you could definitely tell, especially if it's someone that you've already had on your show. I've had some people on multiple times or, um, you know, if it's a person that reaches out to me, then I know like, okay, this person's like interested in this. And it's like somebody that I'm kind of having to bug to get on sometimes. Like, it's almost like I'm, you know, they're doing me a favor and they're almost kind of annoyed or, you know, could, that you could catch them on a bad day. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, you know, nothing too terrible, but it's just, you know, it's just a little, like you said, you kind of have to watch that, I guess. You know what? One of your interviews really surprised me. Hmm. It was Mark Norman. And, and the reason I was surprised was because, uh, and I, I hope this doesn't come off as I'm talking shit to him because I, it's, it, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but I sensed an incredible heaviness coming from that guy. I don't know. Like it was subconscious definitely. And he was really funny on the show. Um, and nothing he said led me to believe this, but I felt just a real heaviness. Like, I, I don't know if he's sad or something like that, but, um, hmm. I, 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 I really felt like there was something heavy going on. And also 
I had, I had thought, I didn't know if the person that he was, the, I don't know if the person that he was speaking to Chuck shoot through, was that him or was that sort of a character that he puts on? Cause you know, he, he uses that sort of voice on stage too. Now he was talking to you casual, he was talking to you normal, but you know, I was wondering if that was a character or not, you know, that kind of voice he uses. And if it is, it must be exhausting to be a comedian, to try to always keep up a certain character, to try to always maintain this expectation of needing to be funny. Um, I don't know. It was kind of an emotionally tolling interview for me. It seemed, it kind of exhausted me in a way. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's one of my, actually that's yeah probably my most popular episode on, on YouTube. It's got like over 6,000 views, which is just crazy to me. I don't know how that happened. Uh, but I mean, he's, he's really popular. He's got, I think he has like a quarter million followers on Instagram. So yeah. Um, I mean, that was a, that was a hard interview. Just, I was just nervous. Cause I was like, dude, this is like a, he's a pretty big comedian. I think when I had reached out the first time he wasn't as big. And then he, by the time he finally, uh, set it up with me, it had been like a, over a year. And I think he has grown a lot over the last year, but, um, to your point about him being, yeah, I mean, I definitely, there was definitely some, some times where he did seem, I think it was more fun. I just actually watched some of it, that interview today. And he did seem kind of frustrated with, um, the business, I think, because he's putting so much effort in and he's getting, you know, Seinfeld is, is the one that said Mark Norman is, you know, one of the best comics, up and coming comics right now in, in the business. So you, I think he, in his mind, he might think he should be farther along than he is. Like he, he's having all, you know, he's trying, I think he's trying to get a show or a TV show or something or host a show or something like that. And it's just not happening. And so I think he's maybe getting a little bit frustrated. Like he had to put his uh, special out on his own and, I think he works really hard, but I don't know. It's a weird time for media, you know, and, and you see mm -hmm. people who have, they created an OnlyFans, you know, uh, two months ago and they're already making more money than yeah. most comedians out there or TikTokers. You know, you got 17 year old TikTokers. Yeah, what's that girl, uh, you know, the cash me outside girl, she made like a million dollars in like six hours or something on OnlyFans. Bad baby. I think she's already yeah. over 3 million right now. Oh, that's so depressing that, you know, she could just do that. And, uh, and some people work their whole lives, you know, hours and hours and hours point. and they never get to that point. Yeah. It's so weird. Now, Chuck, you mentioned that you're not where you want to be or, uh, you're not where you thought she'd be. Where did you think you would be? Um, well, I think it's like, so, okay. So like when I was like 17, 18 in high school, senior, you know, I, I wanted to go to the art Institute in Seattle. And my dad was like, he did some research on it. And uh, he's like, no, I'm not going to pay for that. Because <laughs> basically, like the people that graduate there, you know, this was back in the 90s. And a lot of them, like if you wanted to do the music program, which I was really interested in music, he said, yeah, a lot of those people just go and work at like record stores or they work at Fred Meyer in the music department and stuff like that. He's like, so it doesn't make sense for me to pay for you to go to school and then go work at a record store. Um but, you know, I was also interested in movies and I think they had movie stuff there. And I think in hindsight, I think I should have done something like that. Or maybe I should have just packed up my stuff and moved to L.A. and tried to get into the movie, TV, music, media business or something like that. And so I think if I had started this kind of stuff that I'm doing now with a podcast um, back then, or, you know, maybe I could have done journalism and worked at a magazine because you know, magazines were still a thing back then. I, I think I'd be further along in, in what I want to do. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to, you know, you get, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But I think it's just funny because I remember at the time when I was seven, eight, 17, 18, I was like, I do not want to work a nine to five job in an office 
And that's why I didn't want to go to a four-year college. And that's why I thought Art Institute will be better. I want to work either with movies or TV or music or sports is kind of my other one that I was really into. And sure enough, now it's like I'm 43 and it's like, I feel the same way. I don't want to work in a nine to five. I had to spend 17 years doing it, but I realized I'm like, yeah, I, I still don't want to work in a, a nine to five in an office without and not around a subject that I love. So was it torture? It became torture. Yeah. I mean, I think at first, like, you know, like I said, I do want to help people and I still, there's a part of me that really does want to help people. And that's why I've got the shoot for the moon thing kind of on the back burner there. But, um, and I end each episode of my podcast with a charity. So I'm trying to do some good for the world, but I feel like my, uh, you know, my abilities are best suited for something like with the podcast. I feel like I I'm on the right track with something. I, I know I'm not, you know, making millions of dollars as a podcaster or super successful, but I feel like I'm, I'm in the right, I'm headed in the right direction. Like this is going to lead to something good. And this is like what I'm supposed to do. I don't know if that makes sense, but I felt like when I was school counseling, I kind of thought that for a little while. And then as time went on, I mean, yeah, it did. It became torture, man. Like just getting up and going and getting out of bed and going to work. I mean, you can ask my girlfriend, she had to hear it like every day. She's like, Oh, you were so miserable. And I just don't have that now. Yeah, I I, I kind of felt that same way. Um, that's why I left grad school. You know, the honest truth is I was sitting in grad school and I was like, man, you know, my whole life I've known I didn't want to work in nine to five. I have yeah. a little momentum in radio. Uh, you know, I've, I've got three and a half years in the radio business and here I am, you know, like in this government uh, program, you know, master's in public administration. I knew I was going to end up killing myself. If I was in a nine to five for too long, I would have killed myself. I, I just like it, it would it would have killed the child inside of me. and when the child inside of you is dead, I always say that that's it. Your chances of achieving your dreams are over. Um, I couldn't, I just couldn't fucking do it. Um, yeah. and that's good for you then. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing, like shoot for the moon. So the whole, the whole saying is like shoot for the moon. Cause even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. Right. So it's like, that's my whole life philosophy is like, people need to like try to do what they want to do, whatever their dream is, whatever it's being a talk radio show host or playing football or an actor or, you know, starting a woodworking business. I don't know, whatever you want to do, at least try to do it. And if it doesn't work out, okay, well, at least that, you know, you gave it a shot, but you really got to give it a shot too. You can't just like try it for like a, a year or two. Like, I think you got to give it like a good five to 10 years. Oh, of course, you know, to be a master at anything. And I think you have to be a master to really see whether or not you, you know, you can compete with the best of them. You got to put in 10,000 hours. You know, that's what, that's what it takes to become a master. It's something I think you really have to commit um, and what was, what was that for you? What was your catalyst? What was the moment where you said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go after my dreams. I'm going to create a show and there's no more excuses. I'm going after this thing. Yeah. I mean, I think it was like multiple things after trying different things like, okay, so I did the school counseling. I knew like, I started to realize pretty early on that I was like, I don't think this is like my dream job. And, but then I thought, well, maybe that's just what, that's what life is, is that you don't get your dream job. You got to just but then I thought, well, maybe I could do something better. So then like, I got, I remember getting like my real estate license and like, I tried the shoot for the moon life coaching thing. And, um, I looked into being a financial advisor cause that's what my dad did. And so I was looking at all these different things. And then again, it just came back to that. Like you said, the kind of the kid inside of you, like, I guess maybe I never really grew up. I don't know. But like all those interests when I was a kid, the things that like really like were exciting for me, like movies and TV and music and rock stars and sports and those are the things I want to talk about and, and, and be around. So I was like, well, I just, I got to do this. Like I, you know, even if I'm not making any money right now, 
doing it or, you know, I, I, this is, I have to spend my time with this and I'll do something else to pay the bills in the meantime. And, um, you know, hopefully I, there was someone else I talked to that said, you got to look at your life. Like, where do you want to be in five years? Like look to see where do you want to be in five years and then start going on that path to get there. So that's kind of what I started to think. I was like, well, I mean, this is really what I want to do. So, I mean, I'm going to have to give it some time, but in five years, do I want to have just kept working in the schools and been miserable? Or do I want to be closer to possibly being able to achieve my dream? And the thing is, is like, if you listen to my show, I mean, I always talk to these, you know, it's a lot of rock stars and musicians, but also comedians. And I've had authors and people from other things too. And a lot of them, it's like the same story. I mean, they put in these years to achieve their dream. And it, it, a, lot, a lot of times it takes a while. I mean, the guy from uh, uh, Breaking Benjamin, he was in a, he was in another band before that called Adelita's Way. But before he got in Adelita's Way, which was like, you know, professional band, I mean, he was in this band Copper for like eight years and he didn't give up, but it like, it never popped. But then right after he quit, he finally got that other job. So I think sometimes it just takes a long time. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of self-belief and it takes a lot of ignoring the demons. You know, I call it the demons, but those voices that whisper in your ear, okay, it's time to stop. It's time to take the sensible route. You've had your fun. You know, it, it's enough. You know, you're never going to make it. You know, all those things uh, you have to, that's what makes somebody great. I think once they make it and once the world recognizes their greatness, uh, part of that, you know, the price you have to pay is you have to deal with years and years of ignoring those voices and all the negativity and still keep putting one foot in front of the other and working hard and all of that stuff. Now, uh, you know, when it comes to you, you've interviewed people, you know, after you're about a year into the show, right? Uh, it'll be two years this June, two years this June. Congratulations, my friend. Nice. You're about two years in, uh, you've interviewed people with, you know, 200,000, 200,000 plus followers. Mark Norman was one of, one of the persons, uh, Keith Wallen, that was the guy from Breaking Benjamin. We've got yeah. Corinne Olympios from The Bachelor. Uh, you know, again, Don McLean, bye bye, Miss American, bye. You know, we got all kinds of motherfuckers on the show. Mm -hmm. uh, heavy hitters. Do you get super nervous or do you get more nervous when you're interviewing somebody with 200,000 followers versus like 7,000? Because, and the reason I ask that, you know, I, I would think it's an obvious yes. Of course, I do get more nervous, but it is kind of strange at the same time to look at a person differently based off of like a follower count or something like that, you know? Yeah, no, that, that's a really good question. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's different every time. It's really weird because definitely the first time, I mean, so like, I think my, it was like probably my second interview and it was just, you know, it was, it was not just, but it was like the drummer of this band trickster that, that I really liked as a kid. And, uh, but you know, that's not Led Zeppelin or anything, but I was like really nervous and I was like freaking, I mean, it's only the like second interview, that I did. And I did a couple on another show, but, um, you know, I was, I was really nervous. And then once I got in and I started asking the questions, I mean, I felt really comfortable. And then when I, when I was finished, it was just such a good feeling. And that's kind of been the pattern for most of these, but as time has gone on, and I think I'm at over 120 episodes now, um, the nerves have definitely, it's definitely uh, lessened a lot for most of the people. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's some more, you know, like Don McLean, you're like, okay, I hope I don't, fuck anything up here. Like, I mean, you definitely get nervous. And the thing that I do is I do, as you know, I do a lot of research. So I listen to other interviews so I can tell kind of their, their personality, uh, in the other interviews. Like, are they, are they the kind of person that kind of snaps at, at the interviewer sometimes, or are they really laid back? And so I kind of, that kind of helps me know what I'm expecting, I guess you'd say. 
Um, but like, yeah, I had this guy, um, this band Tesla, they were, they were pretty big in the eighties and nineties. And I interviewed the bass player and I, I knew from listening to other interviews, I was like, dude, this guy's, he's not necessarily like a dick, but he's just, he kind of is like kind of gruff. I think it's more like, he's kind of like an introvert. And so he just comes across as kind of like a dick, but I loved him. I thought he was so great. He was so funny. And what hit the end, he said, he was asking me like where I live. And I said, Oh, Phoenix. And it's beautiful, sunny here. And he's like, you asshole or something like that. He was joking (laughs) with me. So I mean, yeah, I think that helps, but I would say the beginning right before I do the podcast is always the worst part. Cause I, there is a little bit of nerves to different degrees, depending on who it is or, you know, the mood I'm in or whatever, the personality of the, of the guests. But then the best feeling, as I'm sure, you know, is right after you finish that interview, it's almost always like a big giant high. Cause you just, you know, you had this enlightening, exhilarating, uh, hopefully electric kind of conversation that really like makes you feel alive. At least it does for me. I can't sleep. I spend, you know, the next four <laughs> to six hours just walking back and forth on this weird jolty high. And I'm, I am replaying the conversation over and over and over in my head. And, um, yeah, it, it's a, it, it is, it's a very strange chemical reaction that's going on in my body, you know, for those four yeah. to six hours afterwards. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. It's like a high. And especially like for some of these guys that were in these bands, um, in the eighties and nineties that I was a huge fan of as a kid, and then to interview them, I mean, it's just, it's kind of surreal to be honest with you. I mean, and some of those guys maybe not, don't have as many Twitter followers or whatever, but to me, they're just like, they're huge. They're like rock stars. So that is really cool. That's how I just knew. I was like, dude, I feel so alive doing this. I feel like I'm on the right path with some, even if it's not necessarily my podcast is going to pay the bills. I feel like it's going to take me on a path. That's the right path for my life. If that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I call it a divine peace. Your your body has a way of connecting with the universe and everything when you're on the right track. It gives you a divine peace, I think. I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, you got to, you, you know, you yeah, I, I don't know how else to describe it. You kind of just have to go with the the flow sometimes and I feel like the, the you know, the world's taking me this way and I'm not going to fight it. So there was a weird period a few months ago with my show where uh there was a lot of growth. Um, and, and some PR companies started to find me and talk to me and it, and it just changed my show world. It allowed, it just opened up a world of new guests to me. And, um, well, you know, I panicked in that moment. (laughs) I I had, I fucking panicked and I, and I, you know, spent a couple of days, luckily it was a weekend, just really freaking out and almost not, not, I didn't cry, but I had that feeling like I was just, it was too much emotion coming out of me. I felt like an imposter. I felt, okay. I've been doing this for nine months and I've got so, you know, like 10,000 hours, I've got a long way to go to continue to develop and, and be better at my craft. And I don't belong talking to these people. you like, I haven't, I haven't earned that. I don't, I'm an imposter. I'm a fucking imposter. And they're going to find that out when I talk to them. What do I do? And you know, I, and what did I do? I got over that. I took a deep breath. I got over it just like you've gotten over it before. Um, but my question is to you, do you deal with the imposter syndrome and how do you deal with it? Oh yeah. All the time. Um, and it's funny because, you know, I talk to these people who are super successful, much more successful than me and they feel that. So I think that doesn't go away. I mean, that, that's one of my most fascinating interviews, believe it or not, was Corinne Olympios. You know, she's this beautiful young girl. She's on the bachelor. She's one of the most notorious bachelor characters. Supposedly, I don't really watch the show, but I watched her season cause it was fun. And she told me, she's like, she has this anxiety and she doesn't think she has enough followers. And, and I mean, so I think that everybody deals with that. And I think that it's, uh, it's very common. And I think the people that say they don't deal with it are full of shit. 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think they're mm-hmm. just, uh, they're just, uh, pretending because I think we all deal with that at times. I mean, I don't know about for you, but for me, uh, the podcasting thing that I, the interviewing these people, it's such a roller coaster. I mean, I can interview somebody, like I said, the, the best feeling is right after an interview. Um, but then sometimes like, you know, some of my interviews will get press and I'll get real excited. Oh, this interview got four articles on four different websites or whatever. It'll be so amazing. And then other interviews, you know, will hardly get any listens and no press or anything. And so then that's like really depressing. And so, but yeah, I mean, you kind of just got to know that I think. And it's, it's kind of a good metaphor for life because that's really life. If you think about it, I mean, there's big highs and there's big lows with life. There's going to be a lot of good shit that happens and there's going to be a lot of bad shit. So you kind of have to learn how to, how to roll with that. You've interviewed a lot of people who, you know, most of us normie folks would consider they've, they're people who have achieved their dreams. You know, they're people who have made it, you know, uh, I think a lot in context of myself, you know, I think I'll have made it, you know, when I am rich and famous from the podcast and I'm making like, uh, you know, Barstool Sports 75 grand an episode, uh, you know, that, that to me, I go, man, when that happens, that's going to be incredible. When I, you know, I can afford all these trips and do my, my interviews in person, I can go to Miami, then New York, you know, all that shit. That is what I would consider making it now for Mm -hmm. some of your clients, for some of your guests on your podcast, it would be, you know, breaking Benjamin. That would be, of course you fucking made it when you're playing guitar for breaking Benjamin. So the question for you is you've talked to so many people who have made it. Does, does that, when people have made it, has, does that provide happiness? Do you sense that these people, for the most part, have achieved full happiness, full satiation? Um, because, and I think in our minds, people who haven't made it yet, in normal folks, you think, man, those people are happy. They've got money. They're touring the world. They've they've got fame. That is what it takes to be happy. If I had that, I would be happy. You know, how can anybody like that kill themselves or abuse drugs? Because you know, they've got to have the perfect life. If I had that, you know, I would be perfectly content. So the question for you is, do you sense that most of your guests who have made it, you know, in their craft, do they have that sense of perfect contentness of peace of happiness and satiation? I mean, I don't know if anybody has that sense of perfect content and happiness, but, um, you know, like I said, the Corinne Olympios, I mean, she's telling me about like how she has anxiety and she's having all these uh, she was having basically insecurities and stuff. And she's living in this giant like mansion with this super rich guy and was on the bachelor. She's young and beautiful. And so, I mean, that like that one kind of shocked me. And I think there's a lot of stories like that of, I mean, you said like people that, you know, we never think Kurt Cobain kills himself, all these rock stars, Chris Cornell, all these people. Um, but especially when like Kurt Cobain is, you know, he's in his twenties, super young. So I mean, there's so many stories like that where people you on the surface, they seem to have it all, but you just don't know. I think happiness is really like a kind of like a mindset. I think it's, there's people that have nothing that are, I mean, there was teachers that I worked with. This was fascinating to me because there'd be teachers that I worked with and they were so happy. And I was like, I, I don't, how is this guy so happy? I'm miserable. And, but you know, it's like they, for them, they love teaching and they love being around kids. And it was like energizing. It, it's funny. Cause I remember my dad saying like, you know, when he used to go into bookstores, he would just feel this, like, it's like he felt it, like he felt energized. It was something about being around all these books just gave him this like energy, you know, that he felt alive. And, uh, I think you got to find out what that is for yourself, you know? And I think for me, it's, it's podcasting and it's talking to all these really interesting people, these authors and musicians and movie 
you know, comedians and, and such, it's really like energizing to do that. And so, I mean, I, I'm not, I definitely haven't made it in any way, but I feel like way happier and people that know me and, uh, you know, they can see it and they, they tell me, they're like, yeah, you, you're like way happier than you were in, when you were in the schools. And obviously I was making way more money in the schools, but I was miserable. So for me, it was like the money didn't mean anything, but like doing something I love that really makes you feel alive. So that's why I'm just going to try to focus on doing what I love. And like I said, I'll do something else to pay the bills in the meantime, or um, I'll find a way to survive as long as I and might, have, might not be able to do it, you know, two or three episodes a week every time. But, you know, as long as I can at least still be doing this in some capacity, I feel like I'm on the right track with my life. And I feel like I'm I'm happy. So to answer your question, though, for other people, that I think it just depends. And a lot of these musicians, like they're just really happy doing music. I mean, they're really happy that they get to, especially if they can do it for a living and get paid for it. It's amazing. DMX recently passed away. He passed away today, actually, from an overdose yeah. and complications so resulting from that. Oh, really horrible. Um, 50 years old. He died in New York. And, you know, I wanted to ask you, why do you think so many creative people have substance abuse issues? I myself have a substance abuse issue. I, um, I, habitually smoke marijuana. And, you know, some people look at that as not a drug issue. Some people look at that as it is. Um, here's what I know. I do it every day. I do it a lot. And sometimes I cannot stop. Uh, it is what it is. You know, uh, I think we all have, we all have a vice that we deal with, you know, and, um, but a lot of, a lot of creative people, especially they, they tend to s struggle and skew towards using substance abuse, uh, or substances and mind altering substances and stuff like that. And I wonder, uh, do you know, or do you have any thoughts on why that could be? And also has that been a common theme with your interview guests at some point, at least struggling with substances? Yeah, it has actually. That's interesting. That you, I, that's what I've noticed. Cause I interview, um, a lot of the musicians, you know, I interview younger musicians and then I interview, uh, you know, more like middle age. And I interview like some that are, you know, a little bit older, that have kind of gone. And it seems like there's just this, like, it's almost like a cliche, but it's like, they go through this rock star lifestyle when they're young and they're in a band and they go through the partying and the drinking and, and some of them get into drugs and stuff. And then a lot of times they kind of, uh, they hit a wall and then they have to, they end up going to AA or uh, some sort of drug rehab or something. And then they get clean and then they go from, you know, drinking and drugging and all that shit to like, all the time to, to go to like zero, you know, and, um, there is, there are a select few that, um, get a little bit older and they continue to do the party lifestyle, but probably lesser, you know, uh, they do a couple shots or whatever and maybe not go too crazy, but yeah, it seems like there's definitely a pattern. I think the thing is just the older you get, the less that you can, your body can take of that shit, you know? And I think that's what happened with some of these guys like Chris Cornell and stuff. Like, I mean, maybe he was always doing drugs and stuff when he was younger and it didn't affect him as bad. But then when you get older, like your body's really not meant to like take all that shit. And so I think eventually the, their bodies give out. So I would rather people, I'm happy when people get clean because I'd rather see that than them die. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting when you say the weed thing. I mean, I think anything could be, uh, people are addicted to video games or their phones, or I'm terrible about my phone. I'm on my phone way too much. And so, I mean, it's just, it's, it's distractions. It's not dealing with reality. And that's what the, these, all these things come down to drugs or your phone or video games or movies or whatever. If you're doing it too much, you're just trying to escape reality. So. Fuck yeah. But really, I, isn't, I that, say, so isn't that what a podcast is? 
What? It offers somebody a little escape from reality. Uh, I mean, I think sort so. of. I, I think it is. I mean, I think the shit we're talking about is pretty real right now. I mean, I think you're in reality if you're listening to this. And, uh, you know, if you're doing like if you're, you know, driving in your, your car, you're at work or you're making dinner or whatever. I think this is a, a good way to, to get into reality. But I will say the one thing, if people um, want to try to get more into reality and less uh, distractions, do try meditation or different ways to that kind of stuff. That stuff can work wonders, I think. Do you do that a lot? Yeah, not as much as I should, unfortunately. Yeah. But I, when I do it, I'm like, Oh man, why don't I do this more? But I'm also like, I feel like I said, I'm just, I'm so much happier right now that I, um, it was funny. Like I was, I was, uh, I think we were drinking, I was drinking with my girlfriend the other day and I I said something like, I don't even think I really want to drink that much. Like I was like, I just really like reality. You know, like I really, I like being in the moment. Like life is pretty good right now. Like I don't mind having a couple drinks here or there, but I, I just don't really have a desire to like get shit faced or, or any of that kind of stuff, get all fucked up on edibles or any of that shit. I just, I don't know. Life is pretty good. So I think if you're, if you're feeling the need to do that, like you got to figure out like what's wrong with your, like, what do you need to change? Like what would make you happy, you know? And that's yeah. different for everybody. Amen to that. Amen mm-hmm. to that. What is your prep? You know, you get a lot of compliments for, you know, knowing your shit. So when somebody comes on your show, you're going to do your due diligence and you're going to make sure that you know all about them. Uh, I'm wondering how much time does that take? So uh, what type of prep work are hours wise? You know, how many hours are you going to put into preparing for a guest when they come on your show? That's a great question. Um, And it's different for every guest. Um, You know, some of the more like indie rock guys, like I will... I'll try to find out what I can and uh, there might not be a lot on them if they are just starting out or they're not like super successful with a, you know, 50 years in the business or whatever. Like, you know, I might find a couple interviews that they've done and maybe I'll look at their Facebook or Instagram or something or, you know, some Google stuff might bring up some interesting things. So it might just be a few hours or even one or two hours for some people, but for other people that have had like these super long, like Don McLean, like, dude, I could have, I could have gone on for weeks, you know, just listening to interviews that he's done and research and, you know, Googling things. I mean, he's been around forever. So it's, it's different for everyone, but I would say on the average, I, you know, like right now I'm doing two or three episodes a week. So it's like, what I'll do is I'll like, if I'm doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'll prep for the Monday interview, usually on the weekend, probably mostly Sunday. And then I'll do that Monday interview. And then I'll spend Tuesday prepping for the Wednesday interview. And so it's usually like a day or two that I'm just, that's kind of like, I kind of treat it almost like my job and I try to spend as much time on it as I can prepping so that, you know, like I want to impress the guests and I want to do a good job. And that's, that's what I feel like I'm good at doing. And it's fun for me to, to learn all about them and to find all these things. And I kind of like for some people like the John Karabi guy, um, you know, like those kinds of guys that have been around a long time and done a lot of things. It's almost like, I'm kind of doing like a greatest hits interview. Like I'm taking the best things that I've heard from other interviews and best stories and uh, putting it together. And then I'm adding, of course, my own spin on it, my own questions and things that he's never been asked. I don't want to, the thing is I don't want to just be like a repeat. I don't want him to just, okay, you know, I've been asked that question 40 times, you know, so I want to try to make it original. 
Yeah, of course you have to, and you 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 got to. Can you you can kind of see it in somebody's eyes too? I think very quickly if they've been asked a question a thousand times over. Uh, yeah. You know, you're coming from Phoenix. I'm coming from Seattle, and I th- and I think one thing that makes uh, one thing that is a challenge for us is we're not in known talent pools. So a known talent pool would be New York City, of course, L.A., Chicago, Las Vegas. Uh, you know, we're not known as a place where there's always going to be you know top of the line talent coming in, like, quote unquote top of the line. There's plenty of talent in both of our markets, but, uh, do you ever get frustrated, you know, running a show out of a, out of a regional market, you know, typically, especially 10 years ago, everybody would say, okay, the move is you have to go to one of the major markets, the New York or the LA, you know, stuff like that. What are your thoughts on running a show outside of these entertainment hubs? Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely changed, right? Like, I mean, 10 years ago, I don't, I don't know that I could necessarily run a show from Phoenix and interview Don McLean and, and all these different kinds of people from LA and all over in New York and all that stuff. But I mean, the way with, with zoom and stuff, I mean, if you want to do your show on, on zoom or like this thing that you and I are using right now, um, I mean, you can kind of do it from anywhere in the country, if not the world. I mean, I'm talking to people, I mean, I've interviewed people, uh, in, in Europe and stuff. I mean, and from the UK and stuff, it's, it's kind of crazy. Do you get frustrated though? Because, you know, one thing that really bothers me is there's so much more to a conversation than just spoken word. There's of course yeah. body language, there's touch communication. Right. There's, there's so, you know, there's just energy. You know, if you and I were sitting in the same room right now, we would be feeling each other's energy. It'd be great energy, by the way, it'd be really fantastic fucking energy. But you know, um, you know, everybody, they give off a little something, something, a little, some type of magic. And there's so much more to a conversation than just what's happening right now. And because of the pandemic, uh, and because, you know, you're over a thousand miles away, you know, right now, this is the best we can do. But do you, as we look forward in, into the U.S., as we look forward into 2022, latter 2021, is your goal going to be, okay, listen, I want somebody to sit in front of me. We'll get a camera and two microphones and we'll do a real show. Is that going to be your goal moving forward? Or are you comfortable with the, you know, the Skype or Zencaster type method? No, I definitely want to do in-person interviews. I think that is the future for me, uh, down the line. I don't know how soon that's going to happen. And I think, I don't know how feasible it is for a lot of these guys. Cause I remember like right before the pandemic, I mean, I was trying to set things up with people who were on tour here. Cause right. Cause I mean, the thing about it, Phoenix is, I mean, you say it's not an entertainment, but I mean, every big band or musician is going to come through here on their tour. Every big name comedian is going to come through here on their tour and hit the comedy clubs. And then also you've got all these events like the Phoenix open and things that, you know, all these celebrities come and just hobnob and, and they're in town or whatever. So, you know, I would love to try to set things up like that. Um, but you know, I don't know that it's necessarily a top priority because I think right now the, the zoom stuff is working, you know, it's, I'm able to get press from these interviews. There is video. It's not great video, but you know, two years, less than two years into this, I feel like I've made huge strides. In fact, when I started, I didn't have any video. So now I have video. And so, yeah, I think the next step obviously would be in person. I have a couple ideas for how I'm going to do that. Um, I don't want to reveal anything yet because I'm not really sure exactly what's going to happen, but, um, yeah, I mean, just keep an eye on that. Cause I, I think down the future in the future, down the line, I think that, uh, there definitely will be more in person and, and for now, you know, I do still have some in-person interviews that I've done. Obviously the pandemic put a hold on a lot of that, but, um, you know, I think once everyone's vaccinated and everything, I think that I will at least do a mix and do some in person, but 
I mean, almost kind of in some ways I, re, I, I like the, the zoom one. Cause if I have to go somewhere, unless they can come here, then that's easy. But if I have to go somewhere else and bring all my equipment and stuff, oh my gosh, that's a hassle. Well, I was going to say that's the issue with the Phoenix, you know, Phoenix and Seattle, they're going to get the, the top talent, but it's a very small window that they're here usually, you know, it's like yeah. a couple of days and it's right. really hard to snag them versus being, yep. you know, if you're in New York city, you, they might live there yeah. or, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, it, it makes it a little bit more accessible. Um, right. I've tried that myself. You know, the, the, when people are on tour, it's very difficult to snag them for that 48 hours that they're here. Yeah. Um, Cause they, yeah, I mean, it's different. Comedians are a little easier though, because like a lot of times they'll come in, they're here for like three or four days. Right. So they will be, they do a Thursday, Friday, a Saturday and a Sunday show. So like, there for like three or four days sometimes. So sometimes that one's a little easier. Musicians is harder. They might only have a short window and they, and you might not be their top choice, right? They might rather go to the radio station or whatnot. So, um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, like I said, down the line, I think that that would be the ultimate goal. I think the main thing for me and probably you probably feel the same way or you should is just to grow your show as much as you can. Um, and I think I heard some, a really interesting quote the other day, um, from this podcast I listened to actually. And, and the guy said, it's not as important how fast you're traveling down the road that you want to be on. The, the important thing is to just make sure that you're going in the right direction. And that like really just like hit me. Cause I'm like putting so much pressure on myself to, you know, I got to get this many episodes out and I got to get this. And, I, and it's like, wait a minute. I mean, I'm doing the right thing. I'm going in the right direction. It's like, sometimes it's okay to maybe just slow down and take a step back and, and, and enjoy it a little bit too. Cause you know, it's like you said earlier, like it's like you want to reach this pinnacle where you have this big mansion or whatever, you have this level of success, but it's like, dude, enjoy the journey. Because I tell you 120 of these episodes, a lot of these guys I talked to, like some of the best times were like before they made it and they'll tell you that they're like, Oh yeah, dude, it was like, I was sleeping on the floor and I was eating dog food and it was great. <laughs> you know? And you're just like, what? Like, We'll end it with uh, just a quick question about, um, yeah, so coming from Seattle, or yeah. you left Seattle, you were you were here for a long time. Did, did you grow yeah. up here and then leave? I did grow up there. Yeah, I grew up in Issaquah. What made you leave? Really, honestly, it was just mostly the weather. That was really the, the main thing. There really yeah. wasn't. And I think there was just this like, I don't know, like I just had this like desire. It's kind of like the same with a lot of things in my life now that I think about it. Um, you know, like to do the podcast, to quit my job and to move here. It was all just this, like, I don't know. Like I just kept, I just kept thinking about it. I just kept having the desire and like, I couldn't turn it off. Like it wouldn't go away. I once I had the idea, like to move to Arizona, it like, and thought about it, like, what if I moved to Arizona? Cause I look out, I remember looking out my window and I was like, working at this middle school in Renton and I look out my window. It's just, you know, it's like cloudy and rainy and gray. And it was just so many days like that. And I just thought, what, why am I here when I, I visited Arizona several times and it was beautiful. You know, it was just, even I'd gone in the summer and yeah, it was hot, but it was still, you look outside, it's blue skies and, and I'm still, I mean, I've been here, uh, 13 years, I think. And I'm still super grateful to live here. I love it personally. I know it's not for everybody and I understand that, but yeah, I just, I think it's the weather. And are you completely satisfied with your move to Phoenix? Do you feel like uh, you found the right spot? I do. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a part of me now that it's not that I don't like living here. It's just, um, you know, I kind of wonder about other places that I, that I possibly would try at least for temporarily or something. I think ultimately, like, you know, if I, if this podcast goes where it wants, where I want it to go, or if I can, you know, 
get the, the direction I want to go doing something else, like getting a media job or something, doing, you know, something similar in this field and get where I want to go. I ideally would like to live in Phoenix, Scottsdale area, uh, you know, eight or nine months of the year and then have like a summer home somewhere else. That would be the the ideal. But um, you know, I kind of wonder at least temporarily, what would it be like to live in, in other cities for a while and just try that. So I don't know. Cause it was really fun to come here from Seattle and just try something different. Like I highly recommend, especially you're 26 mm-hmm. and if you've never lived in any other uh, city have. or state, or you have, have, okay. So That's I'm right. a military brat. I've been all over the nation. Military, right. Okay. So you're probably sick of doing that. Then. But I, well, I lived my, like the first 30 years of my life, I was in Seattle. So it was really exciting for me to come here. Oh yeah. I would imagine, you know, um, for me, the thing about Seattle is, you know, I, I came from most most of my dad's where he was stationed. It was the southeast, so I, you know, North Carolina, Florida, and I was born in Texas. Uh, the thing about those areas is, people are much warmer. And the Seattle freeze for some people it doesn't bother them at all, but just the personality and the way people interact when they're at a grocery store waiting in line that type there's a very there's just a coldness mm-hmm. in Seattle that I yeah. I haven't experienced in other parts of the country that I've lived. Um, and I miss that. I miss being able to shoot the shit with somebody and it, you know, there's just warmth, genuine yeah. warmth amongst, 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 uh, strangers and the yeah. sun too, the sun, I, I cannot agree. deal with the nine months of grayness, man. Yeah. No, I agree. It's funny. Cause I remember you mentioned that. I remember when I moved down here, I was driving like a convertible and I remember like one of the first things that, uh, things I experienced was like going to like a gas station and, and someone was just commenting on my car and just shooting the shit. Like you said, and I was just like, man, this is weird. Everyone's like, seems so friendly down here and you just don't have that as much in Washington. Not that there are no friendly people out there, but it's just much more common here to shoot the shit with people. And I think a lot of that too is because it's kind of a transplant city. So a lot of the people that go there are from somewhere else and they don't know as many people. So they're not just locked into their world. They're, they're out there trying to meet new people and make friends. Yeah, I actually almost moved to Phoenix. Um, you know, I was talking to my friend about it and we were like, you know, every it was, it's a big city. It looks very lovely. Uh, and yeah. It's perfect for somebody who's outdoorsy like me. I'm a big time runner and stuff. Uh, and I almost thought about it, but I pulled back because, you know, I'm sort of, I'm sort of thinking if I'm going to leave, you know, like I'm 26 years old. I feel like I might always regret it if I don't give one of the New York City or LA thing a try. Just a, just a fucking try, you know? Mm-hmm. So that might be what I do. Yeah. Well, let me know if you do. I'll definitely come visit. Maybe. I don't know that I'd ever want to live in either one of those cities for longer. I mean, maybe temporarily, like I said, but yeah, I don't don't think I could, I don't see myself like retiring and having a forever home in New York or, or LA. I really don't either. I, you know, it's more LA for me. I feel like just, you know, there's something in my head going, give it a fucking shot. Just And that's when you need to follow that voice. Cause that's what I did to Phoenix and it was the best decision I ever made. Yeah. So I think I might do that. And, uh, you know, my final question to you before we wrap it up, I've had a wonderful conversation, really loved yeah, having amazing. you on the show. Uh, you know, the future of media is an interesting thing because, you know, we've talked about making it a couple of times and growing our audiences. And, uh, you know, I've seen some comments that people have posted about your show a couple of, a couple of times on social media and, you know, people really feel close to you. People have, started to see you as their source of, you know, little small community. And I think that that's one of the best things a talk show can do. A talk show, if it can, you know, kind of pull you away and, and 
kind of drop you into a community that you feel comfortable with. And I'm convinced that's why Joe Rogan got so popular. He took people, that's why I kind of talk about a podcast as escapism, because even though we talk about real shit, Joe Rogan for a lot of years and Joey Diaz, they, they pulled me out of my world and I was now sitting with them in their studio. They took me away hmm. and they kind of introduced me to a world where, you know, I was a part of these discussions, but it was very much escapism for me. So, hmm. you know, for, for people who listen to your show, a lot of them are feeling very comfortable with you. They trust you, you know, you're going to, you're going to give them the right information, information that they're interested in. So, you know, traditionally speaking, 10,000 people who are dedicated and committed to your show, traditionally speaking, that's not that big of a deal, right? You mm-hmm. know, it, you wouldn't be considered somebody who can make anywhere close to a living off of your craft. But in the day of Patreon, if you get mm-hmm. 10,000 people to pay $1 a month for your content, you know, it's, it's completely feasible. Mm-hmm. Then you've got not only a good job, but a great job, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredible money. So uh, have you considered that route at all versus the, the traditional sponsorship method? Yeah. I mean, I've looked into all that stuff. I've looked into the uh, sponsors a little bit. I think I did actually try Patreon for like, I think I might even still have one to be honest with you. I'm not sure, but um, I don't like the idea of like people having to pay to get certain content. The only way I would do it, I think maybe anchor does something like this where people could just be like a, 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 what do you call it? Like a donor or something or like a monthly, uh, you know, give a monthly donation kind of thing. Like they could just throw a dollar or five bucks a month and it's going to take it off their card. And, um, and they would just help out. Basically they'd just be, you know, giving me money almost like a charity basically. But, um, I think that's okay. Um, because I think there's people that, that really enjoy the show that have some money to give and they want to support me and they want to do that kind of thing. So, and I think I have my Venmo at the bottom of my, uh, show notes. I don't think anyone's has ever sent me any money, but if they wanted to, uh, Hey, that's, that's all fine and good. I think the main thing, like I said, right now for me is just to grow the show. And I feel like that stuff will kind of work its way out in, in some regard. Um, I've, like I said, I've looked into the, the sponsor stuff and all that. And, um, I don't know. I just don't know that I'm, I'm there yet, but, um, I think the, sh- the way the show is growing, um, I think 10,000 listeners, like you said, I think that's, uh, when I did the math, I, they, there's, if it's, I think it's like, what is it like for every thousand listens you get, you'd make like, uh, oh God, it was $150 per episode, something. Anyways, I did the math one time and I think it was like, if you have 10,000 listens per episode, which is kind of a lot, you can make a pretty good living as a podcaster. So, um, I don't think that's totally out of the realm of possibility. I mean, to be Joe Rogan and have millions. Yeah. That, that might be a little bit of a stretch, but to get 10,000 listeners, I mean, that's really not that much. And I think that you can, whether it's with Patreon or sponsors or whatever you want to call it, I think you can, you can do it. I think it's very doable. There's a song by, um, men at work. There's, there's an acoustic video of it on YouTube and he's singing, um, beautiful world. It's a great song. You know, my, 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 it's a beautiful world. I like sleeping with Marie. It's a great song. Was that a uh, hit? I, I, I know Men at Work, but I think I only know like their hit songs. It's kind of more of a B-side. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's okay. not that well known. It's probably got a couple million views on YouTube. Oh, okay. Um, I love 80s stuff. And even some of the album tracks are, are really good. And sometimes I listen to stuff. That's what's so crazy about doing these interviews. Like when I'm studying some of the guests and I listen to some of the music that's not necessarily hits or, or super popular or the album tracks. And I'm like, these songs are, who is it? The sponge. Remember that band sponge from the nineties? 
Oh, yeah. um, I interviewed that guy and I said, Hey, is there any song you've done on these albums? You know, that obviously they weren't, you know, hits on the radio, but is there one song that you'd say that, you know, people could, that should have been a hit. And he told me the song, I can't remember what it was now, but I went back and listened to it and I was like, this song is amazing. So uh, sorry, that was totally went off on a tangent, but anyways, your point was with men at work. Well, he, he talks about, um, he, he was recalling a moment before he made it and he was in a bar mm-hmm. singing the same song or whatever. And he was yeah. thinking as he was singing to 15, 20 people, uh, you know, if this is how my career plays out in music forever, <clears throat> will I still be satisfied? Will I still be happy? And his determination was no, you know, I, I couldn't live with this, but my question for you is, uh, what does looking, what does making it look like to you? And, you know, let, let's say in 10 years, you haven't made it. Because uh, for all of us who put ourselves out there, it's a very real possibility. It's more than real. Um, will you still be content and satisfied with just having a great show? Because you have a good show. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I'm pretty content right now, to be honest with you. Like, And I, I haven't made a dime off my show. I'll be honest and say that. I haven't made any money. I haven't really attempted to try to make money yet. Um, but I think that, I think it's getting to that point, but I just, I, I, yeah, I'm happy having a show that, that anybody wants to listen to besides, cause a lot of these interviews, I mean, I feel like it's almost selfish. That's why I try to end with a charity by the way. Cause I feel like a selfish asshole. I'm interviewing this rock star that I love and it's totally just fun for me. And then the fact that someone else enjoys it, I mean, that's just like, that's fucking insane to me. That's crazy that somebody else wants to listen to me do that. And then for someone to tell me that I do a good job or for the guests to tell me when when I do a good job, that's like the biggest high ever. I'm like, wow. Like I impressed you. Like you're this rock star and and you're saying I did a good job. Like it it makes me feel really good. So I'm really happy with that right now. I mean, would I like more of that? Would I like, you know, a little bit more, more listeners and uh, more people follow my show and to maybe get sponsors or Patreon people or whatever. Yeah. That'd be amazing. But like I said, I think I'm headed in the right direction. And so I'm just going to keep going there and, and see what happens. And, you know, maybe we'll talk in five years and it'll be a totally different conversation, but at least right now I'm enjoying it, man. I'm, I'm really digging it. And I think it sounds like you are digging your, doing your thing too, right? I knew, I knew since I was 14 and I heard my first Howard Stern broadcast that I was, my dream was going to be to do talk radio. Now, uh, I didn't, convince myself or have the confidence to try to make that dream a reality for many years later. But, uh, I always knew where my dreams were going to lie. And so, um, when I got into radio and the first time I had an opportunity to do an interview, um, you know, when I pressed record and the, the red or the light turned red, I I knew I was, it was like falling, you know, it's, it's, I've never fallen deeply in love with a woman before. Um, 26 years. No, not, not, I don't have that. I don't have that gene. I don't, I, I don't get that attached to people outside of my family. It's, um, I'm not a psychopath, but I'm, you know, just fucking weird. Uh, love, you know, what's that Van Halen song? Ain't talking about love. That's been my whole life. It just doesn't compute. But really, is that before or after? I mean, is that like even when you're not smoking the weed and shit? You think the weed's maybe doing, t- turning that off a little? It's just, I think some people are meant to fall in love and be all lovey dovey and stuff like that. And other people, um, for it's not like I can't figure it out. It's just my. It's just not a part of my brain's computing. It's like falling in love. What the fuck? I don't. I don't want to yeah, do that at all. Just, I don't think you met the right woman. You'll you'll meet somebody that'll it'll click and it won't be, won't be complicated. Yes. Anyway, though, uh, I I forgot where I was going with that. Damn it. 
Sorry, I keep distracting you with these tangents. No, but. it's no, no, no. It was it's great. I was talking about um uh oh yeah, no, it was just basically when I when the first time I was in the studio getting ready to do an interview and I and I pressed the recording button yeah, and yeah. it turned red. I it was that was love for me. That was like I was in love, you know. So Right. Um yeah. So what now would you like if Howard Stern's like Hey, can you come work on my show? But like, you wouldn't be, it wouldn't be your show, but you're in talk radio. Like, I don't know, as a writer or a guest researcher or something like that, or like a audio engineer or something Would that, do you think that would be pretty cool? Or would you turn that down? You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because, um, that's kind of the genesis of West coast radio. Well, to answer your question, I would, at this point, I would do nothing to, if I had to give up West coast radio altogether, I wouldn't do it. Um, no matter what I have that what much you belief do in the West show Coast radio and then you do this to pay the bills though. Fuck yeah. I do it. Shit. Okay. I'm poor as hell. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yeah. I do that's it. What I'm thinking I'm like, what if like one of these shows or something, you know, what if they, they hire me as like a, a researcher or like a writer or something, you know, to help out to pay the bills. But then I do my podcast on the side. I don't know. That's just a thought. Um, or you hit up one of the oh. biggest law firms or whatever in Phoenix and say, Hey, have you thought about having your own podcast? I'll do it for me. Pay me like X grand a week. I, you know, I feel like that's the closest way to get your own financial independence while building your dream, your dream show. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's, I mean, in a city of 4 million people or whatever with Phoenix, there's gotta be a couple businesses out there yeah. that would pay you five well, grand a month to do it. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is like, you just got to look at, um, other successful podcasters and, and try to figure out the the formula and the path that they took and how they got there. Like, that's what I've been trying to do is like, look at some other podcast. I mean, I listen to so many podcasts for my show. So I hear things that I like and things that I don't like. And so, I mean, it, it's a formula to, to have a successful podcast that can pay the bills. And I don't think it's an impossible thing to do. I don't think it's like one in a million. No, it's, it, it's something that takes years, I think to develop. And that's that right there right. will, you know, it will weed out most competition. Most people, I don't think, uh, have the ability. It's just a rare thing to be able to put years and years and years into something without getting a lot of immediate and clear, clear. Uh, what, what's the word? Not recognition, but benefit. You know, you know. There's no immediate payoff. Um, it's a yeah. lot of work without yeah. a lot of money. And um, so, you know, if, I think yeah. as long as you love what you're doing and you put years into it, then you got a shot. Yeah. Well, in either way, I, I feel like, like I said, I'm, I'm happy and I, I feel like I won already because I'm, I'm having fun. I'm having a blast doing all this stuff. So. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, anyway, to tell you that quick story about the Genesis of West Coast Radio, I actually, I was, when I decided to make this podcast, I was in a job interview. I had gotten the job actually, but it was at Cairo Radio. And the guy was talking to me about how, oh, we don't like callers because we only like to talk about to experts. So we don't take callers here. And in my head, that's like what makes radio radio. I fucking love callers, uh, as you could see earlier. Uh, also, he was saying like, you know, and this is also a Republican station, so you don't have to be a Republican, but just know the narrative that we give off. And it just seemed fucking lame to me. So uh, that's how West Coast Radio started. It was the I, it was a morning producer gig for Cairo Radio. Turned huh. it down, started West Coast hmm. Radio. But um, there you go. Oh, that's yeah, not I mean, important. I feel like the same thing. Um, I'm trying to think like, uh, yeah, because I, I think another show is on the guy asked me like, would you want to be like a journalist? And I'm like, you know, there's part of me that kind of does. But then there's also a part like I just it's hard to have kind of a like that nine to five or just like be a, an employee for someone else. I find it's just like, I don't know, something about it that's really hard. If it's not my project or my thing, I, I feel like it's I'm just not as interested usually. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to aid somebody else's dream when you have your own. Yeah. 
unless, like I said, unless it was like, you know, Howard Stern show or, or, you know, working for Joe Rogan or working on like access TV or something like that. I feel like that might be kind of fun and good experience. Yeah. And and plus the connections would be invaluable, you know? Yeah. Definitely. But just learning from Howard Stern, I feel like, cause he's one of the masters or, or Joe Rogan, what, you know, working for either one of those people to learn from them. That's one thing I feel like I'm kind of missing is I don't really have like a mentor that's kind of showing. I'm just learning a lot of this shit on my own, but through trial and error. Me too. And I'm starting to think that I might need to just ask people if I can shadow them, you know, like uh, local NPR affiliates and stuff like that. I just need to ask if I can follow them around for a day because you're right that, you know, nah, you have to seek better the village. Than NPR people, no offense to NPR people, but I think your, your show's uh, more entertaining. <laughs> My Thanks, girlfriend man. listens to NPR sometimes. I'm just like, Oh, snooze. But like I was listening to your show today, your last episode, dude, it was really good. I was like, and I'm, I'm really enjoying this episode. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad you're having a good time. I, you know, yeah. I really appreciate that. Like I said, um, when I'm here, it's just everything in the world goes away. I feel like, you know, everything's okay. So um, I'm glad awesome. that comes through. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the last thing is, you know, because I've kept you, you know, 40 minutes over the time that I told you would take. Uh, oh, no, I, I, you know, I, I, was, I was worried if uh, – I'm not worried about it, but I hope you aren't. No, I'm not worried about it at all, okay, man. Cool. Not one bit. Uh, I just want to know – Tell me about a golden moment you've had on the podcast, one that sticks out. And I, I'd like to trade moments, so I can go first if you want, or you can go first. Yeah, you go matter, first. But... I'll try to think of one. <laughs> All right. So I will send you this clip afterwards because it's proof. And the only thing is this. You know, you've talked to me for an hour and 40 minutes now. I, I'm telling you, uh, I can't look you in the eye, but I'm telling you heart to heart, uh, this was not doctored in any way. The only thing that happened was I boosted the audio so you could hear it better, but um, there's, I didn't add anything. This was... This happened exactly as I say it, say it happened. Okay. On Hallow's Eve at 11, like 50, I was doing an interview with a good friend of mine, Chris Lorraine. He's a mm -hmm. rock musician out of Los Angeles. And uh, I said, you know, it would be kind of interesting if we spoke to the dead or the powers that be. I said, you know, you and I are people who the child inside of us, I, I use that term a lot. It's important to me. The child mm -hmm. inside is alive. Um we both have dreams that we're pursuing. I feel a lot of energy in this room. I think that could be a catalyst to create something from beyond. So, um, you know, if you're so inclined at around 1159, I'm going to allow, you know, this is October 30th, anything that wants to speak into this microphone, I'm going to allow it to speak. Are you okay with that? So he's like, yeah. So we started to do this energy stuff and we kind of focused our intent on what we wanted to happen. And um, at 1159, I said, okay. If anything wants to speak into the microphone, it's 1159. We give you permission to speak and say whatever you want to the audience. And then the sound that it made was, go ahead and start in three, two, one. Your 10 seconds is now. Did you hear that? What the fuck? Was go ahead and start in three, two, one. Your 10 seconds is now. Did you hear that? What the fuck was that? And I'll, I'll, I'll play, I'll send you the clip afterwards um, okay. so you can hear it yourself, but it's, it's, it's clear audio on my audio. So it couldn't have been him right now on Zencaster, the program that we use, it records both of our audios separately. So it, ha oh. it came through my audio. Um, it's not any type of mic disturbance I've ever heard in my life. And it was very strange, but we heard that sound. <laughs> it was like 1159 at Hollow's Eve. And, and to me, what that said was, uh, 
that Chris and I were on the right track. You know, we generated enough energy from something for something from beyond to come out and get us and say, Hey, what's up to the audience? Uh, that's what I believe. At least that's what I choose to believe. Um, that's probably my golden moment. Wow. That's pretty crazy. So you want mine now? <laughs> yeah, I want yours now. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, it's funny because, hmm, God, I've, there's so many that it's like almost hit these like landmarks. Like I just keep the guests keep getting uh, bigger and bigger. So like, but I think one of the the biggest ones that I had uh, that was really cool for me, like in terms of on air moments was uh, like one of the bands I love. Again, I, some people might think this band sucks or whatever, but I loved Warrant as a kid, it was one of my favorite bands. And so when I had the guitar player on, I mean, and he, and he, he was like amazed at some of the research that I did. And then at the end he says, yeah, you do a great job. I've, I listened to your show and I'm, I subscribed. And I was like, what? Like that for me, it was just like, it blew me away that I was like, this is a band that I loved as a kid. And I still love to this day. And he's saying he's listening to me. I mean, he could have been full of shit. I don't know but he sounded genuine. And just the fact that he would say that is like, and you know, cause no one else had really said stuff like that before. So, I mean, that was like a pretty cool moment. And also recently the guy that I just had, who was a briefly the singer of Motley Crue, John Karabi, I'd reached out to his management and I put in my phone number. And sometimes, you know, the managers call you to set up the interview, or whatever. Well, the next day I get this phone call and it says Beverly Hills. And usually I don't answer numbers that I don't know, but you know, it's like, I was like Beverly Hills, maybe this is one of those managers. And then it's, he, he called my, my cell phone and they said, hi, this is John Karabi. I was like, this is so weird. Cause I was such a big Motley Crue fan in the nineties, even with this other singer. And he called my cell phone. That, that was like, that was surreal to me. Uh, so I can only imagine, you know, the stories I'll be able to have in like five or 10 years if I continue on this pace. So hopefully things keep going that way. Cause that shit's like amazing for me. Incredible. Yeah. It really, it's a, it's, it's a surreal thing to see your dreams play out in front of your eyes. And I don't think yeah. enough people ever experience that, but, um, I know what that's like in a sense. And, and, you know, from what you're telling me, you know what that's like. It's, uh, there's, there's nothing more wonderful than seeing your dreams play out right in front of your eyes. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Um, I don't know how else to, to say it. I mean, it, it's like I said, I feel like it's, I mean, it's almost getting to the point where it's like, geez, what, what, what else? Like it just keeps like wanting up, one upping itself. Like with these, these things, these interviews that people I get to interview and talk to, I just, I feel totally fortunate. And that's why in a way it's weird. Cause I feel like I've kind of made it already. Cause I'm like, to, a lot of this stuff is like, it's been like a dream come true for me. So it makes me really happy. And I know some people might not understand that and they might just think it's kind of silly or whatever, but I, I've had a blast doing it. So I hope it just continues. Joining me on the program today was Chuck Shute host of the Chuck Shoot Podcast. Chuck, I really enjoyed having you here, and I'd like to leave you the floor to say whatever you'd like to my audience before we part ways for just a little while. Uh, I just want to thank you um, for having me. It's been amazing, and uh, people can check out my show, my podcast, my YouTube channel, all that kind of the social media stuff. And uh, I just want, again, I want to, I feel really grateful that I was able to come on the show and be a guest. I mean, I do a lot of hosting and interviewing. So to be a guest is totally different world. And it's a lot of fun because I don't have to prep as much for this kind of stuff. I can just be myself and it's, you've made it really easy for me. So I appreciate the good questions that you asked. Appreciate you too. All right. Thanks, man. And that was the program. Thank you very much to Chuck Shoot for joining me. I had a really good time. Check out the Chuck Shoot podcast on Instagram at Chuck underscore shoot. Chuck Shoot is also on YouTube, Twitter at Chuck Shoot, Facebook, the Chuck Shoot podcast. 
and listen to the show everywhere you like to consume podcasts, Apple, Spotify, The Works. Have a good night, everybody. Live from the American West Coast in Seattle, this was West Coast Radio.